Hey, it's Greg Brady. Welcome to the Friday edition of Toronto Today. Thanks for checking out the podcast. We really appreciate it. A lot of work went in uh, this week. Peter Mansbridge, the inimitable chief correspondent of the CBC News and host of The National for decades, joins us to talk about a documentary that if you're listening to this prior to 8 o'clock Eastern time, you can see on the CBC tonight. It's called 9-11, Unfinished Business. You have to see it. We're going to talk about it as well as his reflections on that fateful day 20 years ago. Joe Walsh will do the same thing, former U.S. congressman. And we talk about Afghanistan falling to the Taliban. We talk about nation building. Joe is always a great chat and always makes time for me, and I appreciate it greatly. And we go to New York to talk to two residents there who've become fixtures in uh, the show that I do. Rachel Sklar is a lawyer and author there, always with great opinions, always uh, we challenge each other and have great conversations. And Rob Tannenbaum, music critic, put out a tweet storm earlier this week wanting to point out some of the exploitation of New York City and the exploitation and hypocrisy of documenting 9-11 and New York City and the trauma that it went through. Um, not for not for me or you, but just in general, especially um, with po- those with political motives involved. So all that's coming up on the Toronto Today podcast. Thanks again for checking it out. Enjoy it. Well, we're asking so many there reflections of 9-11 and uh, one of the names, one of the faces, one of the voices that we've gone to so often uh, for massive stories of impact. And and we go in the moment because they happen quickly. And September 11th, that Tuesday morning leading into afternoon was that day in uh, downtown Manhattan in 2001. Our next guest, chief correspondent for CBC News from 1988 all the way through to 2017 um, and uh, 9-11. Very, very meaningful. There was a special on uh, this weekend uh, on the CBC main network that airs tonight called Unfinished Business and uh, heavily involved in that documentary, which uh, we can't wait to watch. I've seen the teaser for it, but eager to watch tonight is, of course, Peter Mansbridge. It is great to have you on here. Uh, always is. Thank you very much for taking time. I know you've been busy. Everybody's been asking you reflections of it. Is it of everything, Peter? Is it the most memorable story you've been assigned to? I think so, Greg. It's, you know, listen, there there have been a lot of stories uh, over the uh, those number of years that I worked at the at the CBC, but um, that was huge, right, for the whole world, and and it was huge no matter where you lived. Um, Canadians were obviously directly affected that day. There were there were more than a few in the towers themselves, um, but all Canadians were affected to some degree. They had friends, uh, they had relatives who they were reaching out to try and touch base with that day, no matter where those friends and relatives were, because it was that kind of story that affected everybody. Um, because of the horror of it, because of the implications of it, because the very fact that we all knew that in some fashion our world was was going to change as a result of what happened on that day. The day itself, um, Malcolm Gladwell, fellow Canadian, um, did a podcast a few summers ago, and he pointed out that most people have this remarkable recall, or they think they do, of 9-11. Um, sometimes events are so shocking and unexpected, they're called flashball moments, but sometimes we don't, actually we think we know it better than we do because it was such um as that as i said a flashbulb moment if you went through your morning um what were what was your recall of finding out knowing you had to react and then uh, and and then as the afternoon went on i was actually in my doctor's office getting my annual physical early that morning when you know my I, in those days my pager went off 
And, um, and I was called into the office very quickly. And uh, the next thing I knew, I was on the air. Um, and then it became this torrent of facts and rumors and incredible visuals. I mean, it's rare, or at least it was rare at that time, of knowing for sure what had happened because you didn't actually have the pictures of what had happened. On that day, we did. There was no doubt planes went into the towers and everything that followed uh, was documented on, on video. What wasn't immediately was why and who and how. Uh, and that became the responsibility of journalists to try and explain that story. And as a result, you saw journalism live, on air, on radio, on television, and, uh, you know, to a large degree uh, in the days that followed in print, of journalists asking the kind of questions that needed to be asked about what had happened on that day. And we're still asking them there 20 years later. I mean, that's what my documentary is all about tonight. It's not about what mm -hmm. happened that day. We saw it. It's why it happened. Who was behind it? You know, George Bush on that day, that night, I remember sitting there in the studio watching his speech and his determination that those responsible would be brought to justice, and so would anyone who had harbored them mm -hmm. in their um, uh, you know, plot to, uh, to attack America. Well, that's the key, those who had harbored them. And that's what the documentary is all about, and it looks specifically at Saudi Arabia and the questions that are uh, still being asked to this day um, by thousands of family members who lost members of their family, husbands and wives and fathers and sons. I mean, there are a lot of questions about the role of Saudi Arabia, and that's what this documentary, Unfinished Business, is all about. I'm eager to ask you a, a ton more about it. It airs tonight, 8 o'clock on the main network on CBC. Coordinating um, getting um, journalists and broadcasters to New York City once planes weren't flying, um, incredibly difficult. Um, I'm living in Detroit at the time, and so many journalists just packed into cars and drove from Michigan through Ohio, through New York State, Pennsylvania, and, and eventually got there. Um, was it more complicated for Canadian broadcasters? Clearly, it would have been. Uh, a little bit, but, you know, they, they all got through. They jumped into their cars in Toronto and drove across the border, uh, you know, in a number of places, Buffalo on, you know, the, at this particular end of uh, Lake Ontario and, uh, you know, Kingston and other spots on the um, uh, at the other end of, uh, of the lake. So, um, but they got through and they were there mm -hmm. and they were reporting by that evening and uh, trying, you know, to get to ground zero, uh, which, you know, was being blocked off for good reason. Uh, but trying to, you know, ask, you know, see images, ask questions, you know, try to determine as much information as we could because people obviously were, you know, desirous of whatever they could find out about how all this had happened and what the latest was. I mean, there were thousands of people missing and we saw these you know, heart tugging scenes for days after of people posting pictures of their relatives who they hadn't heard from since the moment those planes hit the towers. And, you know, mm -hmm. we all assumed certain things, but the families never gave up. And today they're never giving up trying to answer the ask questions and, and, and find the answers. And they're asking that of their government and their government in many cases, once again, as the documentary will prove mm -hmm. their government is not giving them answers. <laughs> it's giving them blacked out documents. It's, um, it's an incredible 
It's an incredible story, and it's government after government after government, uh, you know, both Democrat and Republican. Uh, it's been very, very um, difficult in terms of trying to get information from them. You've done so many stories that I'm sure tug at your heartstrings, um, and you go in front of a camera or behind a microphone, and um, it's incumbent. It's incumbent to keep it all together. I mean, you know, I, I wasn't born, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a little kid when I first see the footage of you know, Walter Cronkite announcing JFK's death and he's got to wipe his eye. There are those moments. Um, I remember a few days after September 11th with all the photos up, all the pictures of the missing that that relatives it's hitting me now that people were posting. And it is it was hard to watch that footage. And many reporters went to that scene and broke uh, down. What were the moments in the aftermath in those days after Peter that that grabbed you and uh, and and just made the work difficult, made it tricky? Well, uh, you know, the various memorials that were held in the days after, including an incredible one in Ottawa on the uh, lawns of the uh, Parliament buildings, um, those were emotional. In the moment, on the day of, on 9-11 and 9-12 and 9-13, so we were on the air, like, continuously for days on end, mm-hmm. um, you, were sor- you were caught up in the moment in the sense of trying to determine information and answer questions. And so things were going by at kind of rocket speed. Um, you were challenging yourself all the time about whether the kind of journalism we were doing was appropriate and correct, and that we weren't just filling time um, mm. with, with stuff that was, was rumor. I mean, on the day off, there were all kinds of rumors. There were, there were all kinds of planes in the air, supposedly, Heading towards other cities and other, you know, other buildings, um, there were things happening on the ground supposedly, and you know, it was a constant torrent of information. So to get caught up in the emotion of the day, which wasn't hard, you just had to look at the pictures. But to be get caught up with that, really, you know, took away from your, your focus on trying to tell the story in the most accurate way possible, and to continually warn viewers that you know on days like this information you know is incredibly important but it's also often wrong um and you're you're trying hard not to uh, to fall into that trap peter mansbridge is kind enough to join us global news radio 640 toronto on toronto today uh his documentary 911 unfinished business will air on cbc tonight uh, at eight o'clock, um, you'll know more. Most of our listeners will probably know more about what it was like on the ground in Toronto, not living even in the country at the time. As I said, it felt like people were concerned about targets here. You just didn't know. So there was talk about the CN Tower. There was talk about some of the big skyscrapers. And it, it sounded like around uh, late morning, just offices filed out and subways packed and go trains packed and the highways packed. And it just, that's my, that's, that's what seems to be what people told me is it was a real exodus out of the downtown. Do I have that right? You do have it right. Uh, There was a real exodus and, and and it took a couple of days for people to come back. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And, 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 and the other thing that was so strange about it for those two or three days after was to look up in the sky and not see planes. And then when planes started flying again, you looked at them very differently as they were flying over the city, coming in or leaving from Pearson. You know, the vulnerability that we'd witnessed from a couple of days ago and when you saw a plane flying in over, you know, downtown Toronto on a regular flight pattern, you 
you, you know, you held your breath. I want to dig uh, deep uh, into in our remaining minutes into the documentary, into the, some elements of of our involvement militarily in assisting the U.S. One on New York. Um, you've been since uh, I've been since I'm sure our listeners have. It's just it, it is it just implants into your brain. You can go with a friend. You can go for work. You can go with your family. And when you walk in Manhattan, you, you think about it. Um, it's it's on your mind a lot. Um, that's been my experience walking in New York City subsequent. Yeah, you can't you can't get away from it. Um, and New York is, you know, has, New York is New York. It's a fantastic city. There's so much to do and appreciate about it. But you can't walk through there as a visitor and not, you know, remember 9-11, certainly if you're of a certain age. The NATO Council basically decided, NATO decided that if you attack the United States, you're attacking all NATO nations. Um, and the appetite, if you will, um, to, to go after the people that did this, uh, al-Qaeda being harbored in Afghanistan, potentially being harbored by the Taliban 20 years ago. Um, you mentioned the few days after, September 12th, September 13th, September 14th. It's hard to visualize all that would transpire with Canada's mil- uh, transpire with Canada's military involvement in the early days and then the debate of how long we stay there. But and I'm sure the irony of what's happened in the last month in Afghanistan, just you, you can't make this up. They're going to inaugurate their new government on like today, on September 11th. It is um, again, you, you can't write the script. Um, somebody in Hollywood would say it's too unrealistic that all this plays out the way it does over two decades. And it certainly has played out that way. I mean, listen, bin Laden was the figurehead um, leader of al-Qaeda, uh, and there's no doubt he was aware of what was about to happen when those planes were hijacked. Afghanistan, as you said, was harboring um, al-Qaeda. But Afghanistan sort of, you know, was the culprit in the sense that it was, you know, harboring uh, al-Qaeda. But it wasn't the country that kind of organized 9-11, if there was a country beyond al-Qaeda's leadership. That's what this documentary looks at. Mm-hmm. You know, was there harboring going on? Was there knowledge within Saudi Arabia of what these hijackers were doing or about to do? They, some of them had been in the U.S. For, uh, for more than a year. They'd been funded. They'd been helped. They'd been put in housing. Who was responsible for all that? These were, you know, 19 guys most of whom couldn't speak English, none of whom knew anything about flying an airplane. And yet they managed to navigate themselves around different parts of the U.S. And there's proof, as you'll see in the documentary, of help from certain members of the embassy of Saudi Arabia. Now, the Saudi Arabian royal family and government aware of what was about to happen? I don't know. I don't have any evidence of that. But were they aware of these people and their backgrounds? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. They were. And they uh you know, they'd arranged funding for them. A lot of money had moved forward from uh certain power brokers in Saudi Arabia to Al Qaeda to Bin Laden. The Bin Laden family was an important and still is today, a very important player in, in uh Saudi business. Um totally separate from their son, Osama bin Laden. But nevertheless, there's some interesting you know, coincidences, let's call them that, 
Watch the doc. You make up your mind. Mm-hmm. It's not a, you know, it's not a, it's not a conspiracy theory. It's just dealing in the facts that we mm-hmm. know and asking questions about why don't we know these other things. Now, to his credit, uh, Joe Biden has said they will reveal everything that they have, all the knowledge they have about Saudi Arabia's connection with mm-hmm. uh, 9-11 at some point in the near future. Now, other administrations have said that, and it hasn't happened. Let's see whether it does happen this time. The documentary is 9-11 Unfinished Business. It's on CBC on the main network tonight uh, at 8 o'clock. That's its debut. It'll be on the main network and uh, CBC News Network throughout the weekend. Um, Listeners will scream. My bosses might even scream. If I don't ask you about a federal election 10 days out, you've covered many (laughs) of them. Um, What are the unique aspects of this one you're seeing? Um, Is there, I'll put it this way, is it patently obvious that a majority government of, you've you've covered many landslides, a couple for Brian Mulroney, a couple for John Cretchen, a majority government just doesn't seem reachable for either Justin Trudeau or even right now um, his CPC adversary, uh, Aaron O'Toole. No, I, I would agree with you on that. Uh, at this moment, uh, I mean, I think something that would drastically impact either one of those two gentlemen would have to happen for it to suddenly become a majority for the other. Um, I've been wrong before, but one of the constants in this campaign uh, is that on the wide you know, kind of spread of, uh, of polls that we've seen, they're all very, very similar. They're all either, you know, they're all within the, within the margin of error, they're all a tie in popular vote. Now, as we learned from last time around, when the Conservatives had two or three percentage points more votes than the Liberals, but lost by 35 seats, Strange things can happen the way the vote is, uh, you know, distributed across the country. But that was a minority government. There's every reason to believe this one will be by one of those two parties at this moment, unless something really big happens. But uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, we saw in the last election some pretty big stuff happened. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, a, a and, lot, uh, uh, it didn't have an impact to swing things one way or the other. Loved having you on this morning, uh, and thank you for being so, uh, you know, so frank, so poignant uh, with your recollections of 20 years ago. And we look forward to watching tonight, uh, all of us too. Thank you very much for the time. Thank you, Greg. Always a treat. We'll go to New York City, talk to music critic Rob Tannenbaum, lawyer and author Rachel Sklar, one of our favorites. One of our favorites is here as well. His podcast, F Silence, uh, has some great stuff. He wrote, he did a great one on the tragedy of, of Afghanistan. Uh, he's former Republican congressman uh, and native of the great state of Illinois and resident of the great city of Chicago. He is Joe Walsh. Joe, welcome back to Toronto. It's great to have you on. Thanks for making the time up early for me. Central time. I appreciate it. Hey, Greg, my friend, it's always good to be with you, buddy. Honest. Um, we're seeing so many opinions 20 years later uh, with 9-11's uh, anniversary being tomorrow, suggesting that terror won. Terror got the W in this case. Tomorrow, it's not lost on people. The sick, sad irony of the Taliban inaugurating a new government and they'll do it tomorrow. And they know exactly why they're doing it on 9-11's anniversary and exactly uh, how much that'll rankle people. What's your thought on that? What a weird time. Yeah, 20 years later. Look, um, we lost. It's so hard for Americans mm-hmm. to acknowledge that. We lost the war in Afghanistan. We surrendered. 
Uh, it was an unwinnable, uh, mission impossible war. Uh, and, and we spent 20 years there. I give Biden a lot of credit for having the balls to get us out of it. Um, it was never going to end in a pretty way, in an easy way. But, yeah, what we've seen in the last month, Greg, is, is, what, a, is what a surrender uh, of a 20-year war, of a lost war, looks like. We never should have been there that long. You're in Congress uh, towards the end of Barack Obama's first term, leaning into his second term when he defeated Mitt Romney and got a second term. Joe, was it discussed? Was it ever on the radar? Was it ever on the docket to say, how long can we keep this up? Not for just the loss of life, um, the the cost involved. Um, how, How much did that get discussed 10 years ago? That's, Greg, that's such a great question, and I've thought about that a lot. Ten years ago, I go to D.C., I go to Congress, um, and ten years ago, and I wasn't alone, there were a number of us ten years ago saying, what the hell are we doing there? We've been there ten years. What are we doing? You'll remember Barack Obama. Look, they're all to blame. Barack Obama yeah. implemented the surge. George W. Bush is to blame because then he took us into Iraq. I mean, for 20 yes. So we talked about it briefly when I was there, but then we forgot about it and America forgot about it. Everybody's to blame. Look, America is great. I believe we're the, we're the most wonderful, freest country in the world. I love us. I love the country of Canada as well. But we cannot remake the world in our image. And that's what we've tried to do these past 20 years is turn Iraq and Afghanistan into Jeffersonian democracies. Like us, we have to stop that thinking. People walk, they sort of whistle past the graveyard to me, Joe, when they talk about nation building. And the bottom line is, and I know, you know, uh, a a guy that, you know, you've locked horns with before. When you go on real time with Bill Maher, you lock horns with Bill. There's lots you disagree on. But one thing I think that you two and I, I jump in with you guys agree on is, you can't inflict democracy on nations that don't want it. You can't inflict democracy on uh, nations that are still living in the Stone Age. And a lot of that, let's face it, let's lay this at the door of men who live in those countries because they make the rules. They dictate the terms. They sign the contracts. Uh, <laughs> the Taliban just banned women from playing sports. Of course they did. They're going to kick them out of schools in the next few weeks. Once we turn our attention to something else, they'll be exact. It's like the Denny Green thing, right? You like your football. They are who we thought they were. Of course they are. And it drove me crazy five, six weeks ago to see these narratives of, oh, maybe they've mellowed. Maybe they've changed. Let's give them a chance. That drove me bonkers, Joe. Uh, the Taliban, they're terrorists. And much of the Muslim majority world, as you said, lives in almost this eighth century world. And it drives us crazy and it's wrong. But 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 we can't change them. Uh the people of Afghanistan, uh, and again, there's there's so many misunderstandings. Afghanistan's never been a unified country. If you go outside of Kabul, if you go into rural Afghanistan, they like the Taliban. Yeah. There's a real rural-urban divide in Afghanistan that people don't understand. If the people of Afghanistan choose a terrorist organization like the Taliban to run them, that's their decision. That's not our decision. 
Joel Walsh, our guest, uh, his uh, podcast is called F Silence. He's joining me on Toronto Today on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. The lesson we could have learned, should have learned, Joe, during the Cold War, and it, it took us out of the, it took the U.S. and Canada out of the 1980 Olympics. They responded in kind. The Soviet bloc did by boycotting L.A. in 84. But the Soviet Union, with all their muscle, with all their might, couldn't, you know, couldn't take over Afghanistan. It was a decade-long war, not 20 years, but 10 years. And it took a tremendous, tremendous toll, lots of infrastructure, but it basically broke the, you know, the evil empire of the Soviet Union trying to trying to take over this smaller country with with a lot of terrain around it. We should have learned a lesson from that. I don't know. that, And Greg, I honestly don't know that we'll ever learn because we should have learned after Vietnam. Uh, again, mm-hmm. I love America. I'm glad I'm American. Uh, humility has never been one of our great strengths. Uh, I want America to lead by example. I want America to say democracy is the greatest thing in the world. We'll support you and encourage the rest of the world to be free. But damn it, we don't go in and invade countries and by force try to make countries democracies. All that's going to do is make, well, it's not going to work. It's going to get Americans killed and coalition forces killed and Canadians killed. And it's going to make the rest resentful at us. We just need to lead by example. Joel Walsh is our guest on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. 9-11 um, on, on that day in 2001. What was, what was the day like for you and, uh, and how did it, it change you in the days and weeks to come? Uh, same probably as everybody. Uh, stunned, uh, devastated, sad. Uh, and then caught up, Greg, right away in the days and weeks to follow in uh, the heroism and the amazing acts of humanity that we all saw. We love to talk about how America was united then for a little bit, and we were. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're an extremely divided country now, no doubt about that. Um, it, it, you know what? It just it reminded me and it, uh, that there is evil in the world. And again, America uh, too often um, blindly did not recognize that. We had to face up to that. And uh, it it just, it made me want to, it really made me want to serve more. And I think it was part of what then compelled me a number of years later to run for Congress. I think it did that for, um, you weren't the only one. Um, and we talk about, you know, the late NFL player, Pat Tillman, look at the sacrifice yeah. he gave up, right? Uh, you know, million dollar contract. He was going to be a, you know, star NFL safety. He was great at Arizona state and playing for the Arizona Cardinals. And he walks away from the NFL, uh, to go over and, and fight in Afghanistan. Um, there, there's hundreds of stories, maybe not as amplified as Pat Tillman or yours politically, but there's hundreds of stories of people saying, you know what? Um, um, I, I, I'm going to contribute because I need to show myself. I need to go to bed at night, put my head down on the pillow and do more than I've been doing. Uh, amen. And I often think, Greg, uh, if I were a younger man at the time, I would have enlisted because I know a lot of younger men uh, who did. Um, it, we, we were attacked and there was a common enemy. Um, and I, I, I can't help thinking that last year, 2020, we were attacked. The world was attacked mm-hmm. by a common enemy, this virus, COVID, and the different ways that we've reacted. We all came together 20 years ago when those planes flew into those buildings, and we all came together to do what we had to do to go after that enemy. 
it saddens me that the country now is so divided on masks and whether we should get vaccinated. We haven't come together to attack this common enemy, the virus, and we've got 665,000 dead Americans because of it. Yeah, it's unbelievable. We're, we're numb to all these numbers, all the death, all the suffering. Yeah. Um, your podcast is fantastic. You're a great friend for coming on with me this morning. Thank you for doing this and getting up early for me. Hey, keep doing what you do, my friend. Love it. Love the show. Thanks, Greg. Thank you. Joe Walsh, uh, his podcast, F Silence. Well, we're always excited to have our next guest on. We're often going into politics and issues and, uh, and, and massive things of importance. And sometimes we get sidetracked, but we enjoy having her on on Toronto today. Uh, she's an author. Uh, she is a lawyer. She does it all. She even came back uh, to visit our fair city. Um, uh, it is uh, Rachel Sklar joining us from New York City. It was great to have you back unknowingly, but, you know, uh, some things got to be covert. And, and you came back to Toronto for the you're a Toronto girl for the first time in ages. You got back to your city. It was really wonderful to be back. It was fantastic to see my family uh, in person and not on Zoom. Um, was there with my daughter. My daughter got to see her whole family, extended family, both sides. Really, uh, just really so great to see friends and be in Toronto. I, I, am, I was sad to leave. We were all sad to leave. Amazing. Well, I'm glad you got back. I'm uh, I'm eager to drive over the border. And someone, a friend of mine asked me, said, when's the last time you went to the States? And it was a football game in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I met my wife and we took our family. And that was September of 2019. So I haven't been. That's unbelievable for me that I've gone 24 months without being in either New York State or in Michigan. But this this is where it's at. You know, Joe it's Biden's got to open things up for me. It, yeah, I mean, and it's a pandemic and. There's a variant. There's, There's more than I'm one I'm fully variant. vaccinated and I'm so. driving, but I get it. I got it. I'm trying to, you know, be respectful of all the I rules. Know. I know. I get it. <laughs> it is a constantly shifting thing. So I, I take you from this high of going to see your family in Toronto. And we talked today about the 20 year anniversary of 9-11. You moved to New York City in 98. And I was saying to a couple guests earlier that you walk in New York City when I've been able to come for work. I took my kids there with my wife in 2015 and we did all the we saw the Blue Man group. We went to to Coney Island. We did all the cool New York things that we could possibly do in four and a half days. But it 9-11 and, and what happened, Rachel, kind of implants itself in my head as a tourist. And it's always on my mind. I think about it. I see, you know, where Letterman would tape his shows. And I think about Letterman talking about 9-11 and you get closer to the water. And you think about it. So I can only imagine for now a native New Yorker now for almost 25 years. Um, how many days of the week or of the year is it on your mind that this horrible thing happened and, and you lived through it as a resident of the city? Like any big event in, in your life, as you as it recedes into the, the background, as you move on, as time passes, it, it is just, it is a thing that you think about and that comes up. You, there are things that remind you. After 9-11, I felt like I recognized the feeling that I was feeling and the feeling that the city was feeling as grief and bereavement. I, I recognized it because I had felt it because I had, I lost my brother. And so I had some experience. And it was it, it, there. So there was this moment of recognition of that, that same feeling. Um, and much like losing a family member or someone close to you, it just, it comes up unbidden or there are things that remind you it's, it's, a, it's obviously very, it's a different 
situation, but to live in a city, this is such a, such a giant wound for the city, but also for the country. It was an attack on the country. The, there is more than just New York City was attacked and the stories remain searing. They, they remain searing. It remains awful to think about, no less awful just because we've heard the stories before because it's been 20 years. I always used to watch on MSNBC, they would rerun the coverage from that morning, a very, like a very strange broadcasting decision, but mm-hmm. every year I would tune in. And I would also uh, also watch the sort of the reading of the names. Like it just felt felt important. I mostly just just think back on the moments that I like how I experienced it. Which think you know very fortunately, very luckily, I I was nowhere near there. And I, you know, I think m- most people in New York have know someone or know someone mm-hmm. who knows someone who died in nine eleven, and. Uh, but but for me, from when I think about that, I think about the way, like the people who lived in Tribeca who were suddenly crashing on our couch. Like we all yeah, of a sudden had a yeah. full apartment, myself and my roommate, who's also Canadian. And we just shifted into host mode. Like, how can we, you know, create a safe space for our traumatized friends? It be it's a, you know, for some people that's that's a response. And that's my response is to shift into caretaker mode. Um, and to sort of take action mode. And so there was a lot of like gathering clothes for clothes, clothing drives and, you know, and trying to figure out how, where to donate and stuff. But I, I, I do remember going with my roommate down to Chelsea Piers to see if we could sign up for like volunteer shifts and seeing, this was like a few days after and just seeing Mm-hmm. trucks lumbering up the West side highway with debris, just all this, just gray debris. And that, I mean, that moment was very, it was just like, a, just a moment. I remember him sitting sobbing. It was yeah. just, I mean, there was just lots of moments. So lots of things to r- reflect and remember on. There's, there's that loss of, of, um, you know, tons of, of sense of loss and pain and, the you're in the city itself so you're the the communication we think of so differently now like no one to the best of my knowledge i don't think i had a phone that could text until three or four years later so a lot of it is calls cell towers were down my sister worked for a magazine called the week uh in manhattan but that was near the empire state building and i knew that so i looked up on MapQuest uh on like you know broadband because i could you couldn't do it on your phone then um, and I saw that it was about four miles away. The Empire State Building is quite a ways away from the Twin Towers, but you don't know that as a non-New Yorker until you look it up. But you're still trying to find people. I wonder if, if you went through that with um, friends and, and people that you knew and colleagues in New York City going, are you OK? Are you because you just don't know who is where on that given morning. Right. There's no mark yourself safe on Facebook. Right. I mean, yeah, think of yeah. how much has, has changed yeah. during that time. Um, yeah, I remember it was so hard to get through on the phone. Uh, I remember the emails. I was able to talk to my parents and assure them that I was okay. I remember checking in with friends. I remember I, I was on the phone with a friend of mine whose office, and this was early in the morning, whose office faced downtown. And she, we, we were talking and all of a sudden she said, oh my God, like she watched the South Tower fall. 
and she she in real time she narrated it to me and I remember like fall like falling off my chair I mean that is an expression but it actually did happen to me at that time because there was I mean it was a really just any everybody has their own minute details of the day and the things that they remember years later but um yeah, it was a mess. Also, who knows who had a breakfast meeting that day? Who knows who decided to meet someone for a coffee early on? I mean, the, 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 the stories of these horrific tragedies are always, you know, laced with details of, of split second decisions that could have gone either way. You know, you're early, you're late, you decided to call in sick because you know you really weren't feeling well you you decided to go in because uh you could you could power through uh like it's it's um there's a, so many layers of tragedy and i think like anything is you really nothing is guaranteed and you absolutely don't know what split decision you might make in the next five minutes might change everything so it, um, it's, it's sobering. Certainly this, I mean, an event like this is obviously very different from, you know, uh, getting in a car or anything that could happen. I don't want to be no. like, people are listening. I don't want to be that person who's going to start itemizing all the different ways in which misfortune can befall us. But the reality is nothing is guaranteed. Rachel Sklar. So, yeah, so, so true. Uh, Rachel Sklar is our guest on Global News Radio 640 Toronto on Toronto today. Um, on uh, the 20 year anniversary of 9-11, you and I talk a lot of politics and we talk about issues and I know there's things that fire you up and me up and I could probably get you going about 20 things. We could, I could just mention the word Texas. I, I, I could and I could just I know you could. Uh, I know I didn't. I did, did I did I not? All I can say about Texas is if you would like to support organizations working for reproductive justice, then find one on the ground in Texas. They know what they're doing They're They've been in this fight a lot longer than We've known about it. So there's that. I appreciate it. So we talk about these things and you went through, you go, you moved there in 98. And I remember being on the air in Michigan the morning after the Bush Gore election when still nothing's been decided and it feels contentious and America feels at odds. We didn't know what being at odds were in the United States in 2000, 2001. We're like, this is as divided as everybody will get wrong. But either way, Tell me after 9-11 how it felt when uh, I remember it thinking, you know, I want the election maybe to go a certain way. But when George Bush is at Yankee Stadium, when George W. Bush, the Yankee Stadium goes to the mound, you know, in, in defiance of maybe some advice to do so, throws a perfect strike when he says we're going to get the people that did this to New York City. Was there a bit of a, um, a guiding light that brought America in your mind? together for a, a series of months, maybe even a year or two that, that you weren't expecting after the election of 2000. What's your thought on that? Well, I definitely wouldn't say a year or two, but there was a short window where uh, I'm not, I, I don't recall necessarily looking to George Bush for leadership, but uh, at that time it was, it was very clear that there was, you know, there was, there was one big issue and people were letting politics you know, take a back seat. Uh, eventually, it, it first there <laughs> it became necessary to evaluate the response both to the intelligence that had not been adequately responded to, um, which I mean we all we all know about sort of the the memo from I believe it was August 
2001 bin Laden. Oh, the red flags, the warnings. Yeah, about like a potential the bin Laden attack, uh, determined like to attack. Yeah, um, the United States, and um, it's it. I don't need to do a retread of this. Um, George Bush has had quite a quite a. He's both had the benefit of many years and a brutal presidency of uh, Donald Trump and uh, sort of the, the brutal divisions of now to give him that, that, that soft rosy glow of uh, yesteryear. But um, this isn't, but this isn't (laughs) what I'm here to opine on, but I I do listen. People were obviously trying to come together. People were trying to support people were reeling or trying to just not be part of the problem. Right to be part of the solution, especially when and this is this is a feeling that is familiar from the last year and a half, which is, uh, what can I do? How can I help? You know, you're powerless to 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 actively step in and change. You see, we we are, we get the news feed directly into you know wh- whatever we're doing at any time, and you just want to somehow make it better. And I, I think that was the animating animating feeling around New Yorkers at that time. I, that's certainly what I remember in my cohort and just generally in the air and, and sort of in the media coverage and, and all of that. I, you know, I very much remember the, the moment to me that felt important was Rudy Giuliani on SNL, you know, mm-hmm. saying like, so, you know, making the joke, like, oh, is Lauren saying, so are we allowed to be funny? And Rudy Giuliani saying, Ha, ha ha why start now i mean it was just yeah. just a, a a way to permission to somehow to find joy again to accept that that we it was okay to laugh and now look at rudy giuliani i mean that's uh, right that guy's hardly a beacon of uh, anything good <laughs> these days anybody who's been in new york and, and i mentioned this earlier knows you walk around i took my my whole family there my kids had never been there before so they went five years ago and they were eight and six you know i mean the six-year-olds hailing cabs you're you're going into soho you're you're going through central park but you feel it you feel that something awful did happen there once and it's even harder for new york residents i i I don't doubt that many of them want the week over with uh let's get the lay of the land with uh, a guy we love having on and i'm such a big fan of his work uh he's an author music critic uh rob tannenbaum joins me now on global news radio 640 toronto rob thank you for making the time i really appreciate it uh appreciate you having having you on yeah of course greg always happy to talk to you do i do i have that sense right that there's a uh there's there's just a mixed feeling there's that you know i i was saying i was going through songs on the rising yesterday and i'm like i haven't really you know shoved it because since we're not using cds anymore i haven't like listened to this all the way through in a long long time not since i've had kids and not since a couple years after um 9 11 but songs hit you right memories hit you you probably walk down streets and it hits you in new york city on a regular basis what 9 11 was and 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 uh and the horror of it yeah i um, everyone who lived in new york 20 years ago has a 9 11 story and i I usually don't tell my 9 11 story because frankly it it was better or easier than what thousands and thousands of people went through but i will just mention that Mm -hmm. In the last 20 years, I haven't once seen a plane fly through the sky without wondering if that plane was going to hit a building. As I look out my office window right now, I can see the top of the Empire State Building. At least a couple times a week, I imagine what it would be like if a plane hit the Empire State Building. 
So, th- th- you know, that's a that's a manageable amount of trauma. So if I was traumatized by mm-hmm. 9-11, even though no one I know or loved died uh, at the World Trade Center or trying to help people, then imagine how it feels for those families. And so I, I tweeted a, a thread about how if people want to remember this day in, a, in an appropriate way, maybe the appropriate thing to do is to not tweet about it at all, to not mm-hmm. mention it on social media, and certainly not to uh, use pictures and videos of it. it. My sense of this is really guided by uh, the uh, a guy I work with and consider a friend, and I'm not going to use his name because I didn't ask him for permission. His sister died, and uh, he wrote an article for BuzzFeed that people can and should go read. And it's called The Worst Day of My Life is Now New York's Hottest Tourist Attraction. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things he says in this article is, imagine if the worst moment of your life were constantly being revisited on television and radio and social media. Your dad dying of cancer your mom being hit by a car, your son drowning in a pool. And suddenly this has turned into a public story where people feel they're doing the right thing by reminding you of it. So I'm, I'm Jewish. We are the people of never forget. Right. Never forget is a reference to the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that, that I've learned by marrying into a family that was very much a part of the Holocaust is you don't have to remind people to never forget because they don't forget. The people who went through this haven't forgotten it for a day in the last 20 years. And never forget doesn't mean that you have to keep reminding them of it. doesn't mean that you have to take their personal, private loss and turn it into a public spectacle. I'll give you an example of that, and I worry, and, and I think we document this and call it, uh, for for lack of a better phrase, fear porn. I mean, it's it gets described sometimes as COVID porn as well, and I understand that. I mean, we've just become so numb to loss and numb to numbers and numb to suffering. We sh- it shouldn't have happened that way. Of course it shouldn't have. But um, like CNN for its good and bad, reunited the class that George Bush was George W. Bush was reading to in Florida in 2001. All these kids are 27, 28 years old now. And I remember my wife turning to me. She's a journalist, too. And she said, do those kids want that? Do those kids want that memory that they were in that classroom at that given time? And it's a great question. You don't have to participate. And but it's you just wonder if you're if you're forcing trauma upon people who've already had enough of it. Well, it's definitely a macabre thing to do. Yeah. Uh, but at least those kids, you know, they, they're still not very old. Uh, well, I guess, you know, that's, that's, not, that's not true. They're grownups. But they have volition. If you, uh, if you don't have volition, that's where I think it feels re-triggering. And, you know, we, we, there are so many people who joke about the word triggering. Triggering is, is a real thing. Uh, and it's traumatic and, and horrible to people. I think using the word traumatic is almost a little too distancing. It's awful. 
it causes you more suffering. And, you know, I, I mean, again, if I, if that had been my family, I would be, I mean, you can, I, Craig, I think you can tell I'm a little bit angry. Mm-hmm. Um, if that were my family, I would be outraged at the way people are treating it. And there's, you know, there, there's one other aspect to this, and, and I tweeted about this. It, it, it's the hypocrisy of it. This is a thing that happened in New York City. New York City is one of the most liberal cities in a country that is increasingly extremist right wing. And when this happened 20 years ago, there were people from all over the country who said, we stand with New York City. And for the last 20 years, mostly what those people have done is shown that they don't stand with New York City. You voted for Donald Trump. You don't stand with New York City. You hate immigrants. You don't stand with New York City. You're afraid of Muslims. You don't stand with New York City. This is the city immigrants come to. It's not the only city. They come to Toronto. They come to Los Angeles. They sure do. You're right. Yeah. But they come here because if you don't have money to buy land, you need to go where it's overpopulated. And, and you know, that describes New York City. So when I see people who are right wing, who despise everything about New York City, who oppose everything about New York City, when I see them expressing care and concern for New York City, you know, it, it, it's hideously hypocritical, and I wonder about their motivation. You're pointing out that those on the right, and listen, um, I, I consider myself a, a reasonable centrist that leans a little left. Um, people people have a tough time guessing which way I lean, and, and maybe it's better that way. That said, um, I got problems with the concept of virtue signaling. I got... I think we do too much with, you know, let's show how woke we are. Of course, we've got problems there. But oftentimes it's the right criticizing the left for that. You're turning it back. You're turning the guns back around, as it were, and saying there's folks on the right doing that with New York City. And they'll do it today and they'll certainly do it tomorrow. And you're right. It's kind of gross because they don't. They The other 364 days of the year, they don't espouse those values that they're going to say that they espouse tomorrow. Plain and simple. My city's private tragedy has been exploited for political advantage. Mm -hmm. And to me, as a New Yorker, this anniversary tomorrow, it's not about freedom and it's not about patriotism. And it's not about they hate our way of life. It's about personal loss. And the main responsibility we have if we care about that event is to be respectful and cautious and thoughtful about what we tweet or post on social media or honestly even just say to our friends. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's there's that line I want to get to um, to finish up with where it was just okay to do things again. And we're fighting amongst ourselves now. One of the big things about COVID is what's okay for my family, a fully vaccinated family with, with two teenagers – I get it isn't the same if you if grandpa's living with you if you or you've got unvaccinated kids or or you've got a heavy kid or you've got a kid that has breathing problems. I got it. I don't want to put that family in jeopardy, but I want to get out and do the things I want to do again. 
We didn't have that struggle with 9-11, Rob, but we, you know, I, I wanted to really have you on as well to talk about when people felt okay again to go to the gym, to to play catch with their kid, to go work out, to go to a Yankees game, um, to cheer George Bush throwing a perfect strike. Uh, I remember that. And, and we all loved that that he stepped out with some risk. Uh, maybe when he was advised not to do it and do that. And for a brief period of time, we all tried to we all tried to, you know, lean on each other to get back to normalcy. That feels, again, 20 years away. Hell, it feels 200 years away. What are your recollections of that, of just trying to trying to walk again before we run after after the trauma hit us all? You know, I, I, it's funny. I hadn't thought of the parallel um, between covid and, and 9-11, even though it's, you know, I mean, it's kind of staring me right in the face. Um, what I what I remember is that New Yorkers, as much as possible, tried to get back to their daily lives. If you were working, you went to work. If you were seeing your friends, you saw your friends. But you couldn't pretend that this was a normal day. And by the way, one of the things that New Yorkers talk about when when we remember that day is it was the most beautiful weather any of us have ever experienced in New York City. It was an absolute gorgeous day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And sorry, I think I'm getting a little choked up talking about this. Uh, And even though you tried to go back to what you were doing, right, you felt that that was your responsibility. You know, there were people, if we let them uh, if we don't go back to our way of lives, the terrorists have won, which you know is, is is BS. But even if you tried to go back to your life, if you lived anywhere near downtown Manhattan, as I did, or in in Brooklyn, you were surrounded by the smell of death. Yeah. There are certain experiences I've had that uh, were thankfully unique. And that I can't really describe, but the sound or smell of them are trapped in my mind. One of them, I was in Los Angeles for the Northridge earthquake and was woken up at whatever it was, 4.30 in the morning by the sound of a building trying not to collapse. I can't tell you what the sound of a building trying not to collapse is, but I remember it. And I remember the smell of death. I remember the smell of two burned buildings and 3,000 burned bodies. And now that you've brought up the parallel between 9-11 and COVID, I, you know, I wonder like, how long is this going to drag out for all of us? <laughs> it's just, I I know, I'm trying not to laugh. I don't know, months, years? I mean, yeah. we're, we're having fully vaccinated people uh, getting told uh, you still need to be hiding behind your couch. Like, I don't know how long it'll take. But but let me say this, because I think this is important, too. Yeah. Um, you don't have to try not to laugh. What? My my friend who wrote this article, it's called The Worst Day of My Life is Now New York's Hottest Tourist Attraction. That's a joke. It's OK to make jokes about this, mm-hmm. just like, you know, and, and this has gotten me into trouble over the course of my life, just like it's OK to make jokes about the Holocaust. As long as they're the right kinds of jokes, we have mm-hmm. to find humor in this stuff, mm. how we survive and it's how we go on. And it's not inappropriate. It's not laughter isn't shameful to me. Hypocrisy and spectacle 
are shameful. I hear that loud and clear. Rob Tannenbaum joining us from New York City. Um, I always love having you on. Today was special. I, I appreciate that you did it. I appreciate that you knew um, that this wouldn't be, you know, exploitative. Next time you come on, we'll just talk about, I don't know, we'll talk about um, Izzy Stradlin's departure from GNR and whether that uh, that cost the band a half decade of, uh, of great music, whether he was the glue that had held it all together. Like a great New York Nick, small, like Anthony Mason with the Knicks in the mid-90s. That's what we'll talk about. I, I appreciate the parallel. I was just reading, <laughs> by the way, about the Toronto Blue Jays' uh, Pythagorean expectation. Oh, my God. The Yankees didn't lead in the last four games, the uh, last four nights. Yeah, you, yeah. I know. I feel like you're more a Mets fan than a Yankees fan. Do I have that right? I hate the Yankees. Ugh. I thought so. I thought so. You hate hypocrisy in the New York Yankees, and often they go hand. Uh, you know the Bill Simmons line. Cheering for the Yankees is like cheering for the house in blackjack. Like, who does that? Anyway. Yeah. The rest of my family does. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I was going to say you, you you have to love them unconditionally, but um, that's family, and that's not true. That's just that's not accurate. Uh, look at look at Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks. They were practically family, and look at everything he said about her this week. I could talk about that for twenty minutes. Thank you for coming on. I want you to be able to do it again, and I want you to have a great weekend with your family. Thanks for making the time for me. Thank you, Craig. Great talking to you. You got it. Rob Tannenbaum joining us from New York City. That was a uh, powerhouse interview. I really, really enjoyed that. We'll be back on Monday with live shows, 5.30 to 9 a.m. And, of course, another edition. we got the big Layla Fernandez match on the weekend. We'll be talking about that. And we're steps closer to the federal election a week away when we do our next show. Have yourselves a great weekend. Thanks for checking us out. Don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to rate us as well. Give us any rating you want. Every little bit helps. And we love the feedback, love the constructive criticism. Thanks again for listening.